1 Samuel 23. If you remember, last time we ended with David getting this terrible news that the priests had been slain. And in that chapter 21 and 22, we saw a fearful David. We saw a David full of faith, right, as he enters the cave Adullam and kind of gets reoriented again, getting his, gets his mind in the right place, his heart in the right place, looking at the right thing. And it was a lesson for us, I think. And then we saw the fruit that started coming from that. We saw just hints of a reoriented David and a repentant and humbled David for what had happened and taking responsibility for the fallout of what had happened and telling Abiathar and those who had survived to stay with him that they would be safe. And so that brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 23. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We love you, Lord. We're not worthy of you, but we are so thankful that you have loved us first. Bless this time in your word. May it speak to us. May it challenge us. And Lord, we just look to you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 1 Samuel 23. Then they told David saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Keilah was about eight miles northwest of Hebron. Uh, you can see it on the map there, just general location. About 17 miles southwest of Jerusalem, and just three miles south of the cave of Adullam. And you get word that these Philistines are robbing the threshing floors. Now, you can just imagine how critical this was to a community that you know, the threshing floors were the heartbeat of their food source, right? The threshing floors where they threshed out grain and the Philistines are robbing their food source. And so it was a critical thing. Verse 2, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? Now, notice how different David is already from the early part of chapter 21. Then he was fearful, he was timid, he was not looking to the Lord, he was lying, he was trusting in Goliath's sword, and even at one point we sensed that he was going to Achish of Gath of all places, right? The Philistines themselves for a place of refuge from Saul. Now his heart is fixed on the Lord, his cave time and Adullam has had some effect, it's done its work. Psalm 112 verse 7, speaking of the righteousness of man, says he shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed trusting in the Lord. I love that verse. And that's the sense we get of David now. By the way, this is not David's job to go protect Keilah, but he cared. David sees the need. He has compassion for the people, which according to John 10, Jesus tells us makes him a good shepherd, right? He cares for the sheep. This actually was Saul's job as the king, and he was neglecting it probably too concerned about David, too obsessed with David and his lust for power and protecting a kingdom that's not his really anymore. And he lost sight of the people. People were being attacked, and he seems more bent on tracking down David, which according to John 10 is evidence that Saul is a poor shepherd of the people. And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. Note that when David asks, God answers. What do you want, God? 
and I'll do it. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, call on me and I might answer you. Is that what it says? No. Call on me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Sounds pretty good. We need to be calling on him, don't we? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I know you guys know this one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and all, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. And we're going to see throughout this chapter, David just continually stopping, pausing, acknowledging God in the situation, allowing God and said, God, what do you want me to do? Right? Verse 3, but David's men said to him, look, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord once again. So he meets some resistance from his men, understandably so, right? I mean, they're afraid of Saul in Judah. Why would they want to go fight the Philistines, for crying out loud, right? And so they don't need any more trouble. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah, fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Note that despite the expressions of fear from his men, when God said go, David and his men went. Despite any misgivings they had, they chose to follow him instead of themselves. Matthew 21, 28 to 32, Jesus gives us a short parable of a guy telling a servant to go do something, right? And one of them says, I go, sir, but he doesn't go. And the other one says, I'm not doing it, not going. And yet he repents and goes. And Jesus said, which of those two did the will of God, right? The one who went, obviously. We've all heard the definition of courage, right? It's not necessarily the absence of fear, but it's maybe feeling fear, but going forward anyway and doing whatever it was anyway. Last week we talked about it's not the first rush of emotion that you may feel that's the big issue. It's what you do. It's how you respond in that moment. A sure word from the Lord should be all we need to strengthen us to do anything God is telling us to do. And as God did here, he'll bless our obedience. Amen. Verse 6, Now it happened when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. Now what's this ephod and what is its value here? When Abiathar came he brought this ephod. It's probably referring to the whole ephod and breastplate assembly containing the Urim and Thummim. If you remember, the ephod was this little bit larger garment that went, up, went over the priest, over the robe. The robe is in blue. The ephod is just over that with the different colors and purple and blues and all that. And then attached to the ephod was the breastplate. The breastplate was double-folded, had the stones on the front of it, the 12 stones representing the different tribes of Israel, and it was double-folded, had this pouch in it. And in the pouch were the Urim and Thummim. There were these stones that were uh, meant to reveal 
the will of God. The idea being that God's sovereign, priest puts his hand into the pouch, and depending on which stone he pulls out, that's a yes or a no, to go do thus and so, for to say no, don't do that, whatever. Uh, and it's one, that's one of the reasons you'll see in some of these things that in, in these inquirings of God from David, he's looking for a yes or no answer, right? Probably further indication that he's using this, these, this Urim, Urim and Thummim. There was a time and a season for this. A dispensation for this. It was God's idea. God instructed these things to be created this way and for the priest to wear these things. Provided a measure of objectivity to decision making and discerning the Lord's will. In absence of the complete word of God, the Holy Spirit universally given uh, to his people and poured out on the church. Not the way God communicates today. If there's any doubt of that, consider Joseph Smith of Mormon fame reportedly used Urim and Thummim to assist him in writing the Book of Mormon. Probably not the greatest source anymore. We're in a different dispensation. We're, we're in the dispensation of the Holy Spirit and the church. Not that the Holy Spirit didn't come upon certain Old Testament leaders to accomplish things God, had, God wanted them to do. He did but he not widely given as he is now. You remember the prophecy of Joel, right? And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And all my men servants and all my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. So today God speaks primarily through his word. That's what we compare even gifts of the spirit to prophecies or anything like that but prophecy is is another one uh, the prophecy of joel said in the last days they shall prophesy we know it's a gift of the spirit so which ought to emphasize even that much more why the gifts of the spirit are so absolutely vital to us today discernment of god's will by the way, what this is revealing to us is in absence of this Urim and Thummim thing. I'll say that five times fast, by the way, Urim and Thummim. Discernment of God's will, this is probably the most important thing. Discernment of God's will is really rooted now in pursuing God, born of the fruit of a real relationship with God that was closer than even the Old Testament saints had. Remember, God was with them. He's in us. All right? Verse 7, and Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by, excuse me, by entering a town that has gates and bars. Now, I'm, what's Saul thinking in that he thinks this gives him some kind of an advantage? Well, if you're roaming the wilderness and hiding in any number of caves, moving around from place to place, you could be anywhere. You'll we'll see some of the terrain that he's hunting for David in. And you can see how difficult it is to find somebody, even if you're close to him. But if you're in a specific location, a city, Keilah, that has gates and bars and that kind of thing, 
you plug the gates, you cover the gates with some men, you've got him, right? So easy to trap somebody inside. That's what he's thinking. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. So he's kind of letting us in on how he's been discerning the Lord's will here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Again, note the yes and no questions used by David. Probably further evidence that he's using the Urim and Thummim. God reveals to him, yes, Saul's going to come down against you and attack you. Verse 12, then David said, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver you. This is astounding, really. David has just rescued Keilah from the Philistines. And God's revealing to David that indeed the people of Keilah are going to turn on you. They're going to turn you over to Saul, who's hunting you to kill you. So now David's in danger from the people within the city. Verse 13, so David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. David and his men realize now that basically anywhere is safer than here. Now, there's no requirement to, to play a martyr here and just let Saul take him. He's not acting out of fear or distrusting God by taking reasonable precautions. In fact, you could be flirting with presumption to intentionally put yourself or keep yourself in harm's way. Remember the devil's temptation to Jesus. Ah, oh, cast yourself down. It's written. God will protect you, right? And, of course, to Jesus, that was presumption. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Nothing wrong in David and his men taking reasonable precaution any more than there was with Paul taking reasonable precaution and trying to avoid the Jews who were hunting him down. At one point, if you remember, they let him down in a basket so he could escape. You can still be trusting in the Lord and making the Lord your refuge and trusting completely in him and be taking reasonable precaution to avoid danger. God's not a masochist. There's such a thing as being presumptuous, almost daring God to save you. So unless God is telling us something specific to do or somewhere to be, we can take reasonable precaution while all the while listening, watching, discerning, God, what's your will? Where do I go from here? What would you have me do? I know you'll lead me. My hope is in you. My refuge is in you, right? But absent a specific command to stay in Keilah, their mind is the, we got to go somewhere else, right? Because Saul's coming here. So Saul, for his part's thinking, no point in going to Keilah now. David's not there anymore. He abandons that. Verse 14, and David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. A stronghold 
You may be used to thinking of this word in its negative New Testament context. I'm thinking of 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, right? The weapons of warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, right? Casting down imaginations, you know the rest of that. In the Old Testament, all it, it's a, a really a stronghold in and of itself is just a defensive structure, either because of its height, like a cliff could be considered a stronghold, or because of its strength, caves made out of rock, right? Pretty strong. Or even its remoteness can be a barrier to being captured and conserved as a stronghold. The whole idea is it's hard to penetrate or hard to overcome, hard to get to or get through to get to somebody. Now you can see a picture here of the wilderness of Ziph, if you guys have that. This is the kind of next one. Yeah, this is the kind of terrain that he was hunting David in. Verse 15, listen to this. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Now, wait a minute. That doesn't look like a forest, right? Well, it turns out the wilderness of Ziph, the landscape is very varied, okay? In one, some places it looks like the previous picture, in some places, it looks like the second one. So it was very varied. I don't know how else to say that. Very varied. Very varied. Verse 16, Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. Love that phrase. And he said to him, Do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. I want to spend a little bit of time here, just because this is these are important statements made here, strengthened his hand in God and such. Sadly, this is going to be the last time that Jonathan and David will see each other. Jonathan's going to be killed in a battle with the Philistines in the future. And so this is really their last, their last meeting. But what a blessing to have a close brother like this who can recognize when we need encouragement and respond even before we ask. To all indications, it seems this is unprompted. Just Jonathan realizing David may need some encouragement, right? You can imagine the stress David that is under, right? Being on the, being hunted like this. Jonathan saw David and what he was going through came to encourage him and to strengthen his hand in God. Notice how Jonathan comforts him. Do not fear. Jonathan knows the weight of fear on the soul. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. The enemy's not going to prevail over you. You're going to be protected. You shall be king over Israel. All of God's promises will be fulfilled. You are who and what God has said you are. I will be with you, Jonathan says. I just got to thinking... Man, the Holy Spirit is our Jonathan, isn't it? God's message to us is the same threefold message. 
Don't fear. The enemy is not going to triumph over you. You are who I say you are. You will be all that I say you will be. And even the phrase, I will be with you. Now, Jonathan wasn't. Ultimately, he, he didn't. But the Holy Spirit's always with us, right? And his message, this message, do not fear. The enemy will not triumph over you. You are who I say you are. You're going to be who I say you're going to be. And I will be with you comes through the Holy Spirit himself, through his word, through the church, all the various ways that God speaks to us. He reveals this message to us. Sometimes circumstances can be so crushing that we feel the weight and the burden of it in our soul, don't we? Our thoughts, our emotions, it's so easy for our soul to lose focus in times like this and to become burdened. What's it look like when someone starts to lose it, man, and the, the burden of their soul is so heavy? Anybody ever been there? And I got to thinking, what's a good biblical example of somebody whose soul is just weighed down, right? And, of course, I thought of Job. For all the reputation of, you know, the, the patience of Job, right, his soul got pretty weighed down, didn't it, right? I just want to share with you, I went looking for what the condition of Job's soul, if you will, Okay. <laughs> Just as an example of somebody who's really bearing the weight of something, right? Job 3, 2, talks, he talks about the misery and the bitterness of his soul. Job 7, verse 11, he talks about being uh, his, the anguish of spirit and the bitterness of soul. Job 7, 15, my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my body. That's pretty serious. Job 10.1, my soul loathes my life. Job 14.22, he describes the mourning of his soul. And Job 19.2, the torment of his soul. Now, David has felt some of this too. David has felt some of this too. You can see some of this in the Psalms. And again, that's probably why Jonathan's coming to him to comfort him, encourage him, just in case he's having some feelings like this, right? That this is just too much. Again, it's a blessing when we have brothers who can encourage us. But did you know that you can strengthen your own soul in God? You can reorient yourself rightly. Martin Lloyd-Jones Martin Lloyd-Jones Martin Lloyd-Jones said this in his book Spiritual Depression. He said, we listen to ourselves far too much. We need to speak to ourselves more. I like that. We listen to ourselves far too much. We need to speak to ourselves more. Have you ever noticed how David speaks to and directs his own soul in the Psalms? Let me give you some examples. Psalm 42, 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Who's he talking to? Talking to his soul, isn't he? <laughs> why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? And then he tells his soul to do something. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Psalm 42, 6, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, 
I will remember you. Notice that. His soul is cast down, and what's his choice? What's he choosing to do? I'm going to remember him. I'm going to set my mind on him. Psalm 42:11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Who's the health, the, who is the health of David's countenance? God is. And he's telling, he's reminding his soul of this. Psalm 62.1, truly my soul waits upon God. From him comes my salvation. Psalm 62.5, my soul, who's he talking to? He's talking to his soul. My soul, wait silently for God alone. Psalm 94, 19, in the multitude of my thoughts within me, your comforts delight my soul. Isn't that powerful? Psalm 103, 1 and 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his soul, isn't he? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. He's telling his soul to dwell on God and all of God's benefits. That's going to be a healthy thing to do. And towards the end of Psalm 103, he tells the angels to bless the Lord. He tells all of his hosts to bless the Lord. He tells all of God's works to bless the Lord. And then he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And then Psalm 104, again, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my God, O Lord my God, you are very great. David in the Psalms had the ability to quiet and calm his own soul when he, when he took it, when he did it. He had the ability to strengthen his own soul in God, right? Jonathan undoubtedly in trying to strengthen David and God, was saying much of the same thing to him, reminding him of who God is, the promises of God that had been given to him. And again, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, is our Jonathan. Verse 19, Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in strongholds in the woods? in the hill of Hakalah, which is on the south of Jeshimon. I think we got a picture of in the south of Jeshimon up there. You can see the terrain that Saul's hunting him down in. Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. Well, isn't that sweet? So we got to look at Psalm 54 because this specifically says this is the time period in which this was written by David, Psalm 54. It's short. Psalm 54, the descriptions to the chief musician on Neganoth, Maskil, a psalm of David when the Ziphims came and said to Saul, does not David hide himself with us? And it says, save me, O God, by your name. And judge me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers are risen up against me, and oppressors seek after my soul. They have not set God before them. 
Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with them that uphold my soul. He shall reward evil unto my enemies. Cut them off in thy truth. I will freely sacrifice unto you. I will, pre I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble, and my eye has, have, my eye has seen his desire upon my enemies. What a sweet example of David's continued Godward look in the face of difficulties and, stress, and distressing circumstances. Alan Redpath said this, he's now looking at God. First he was looking at his enemies and these supposed friends of his, but now he sees them through God. If you begin with God, your enemies will grow small. And so often we look at our enemies, we look at our difficulties, our circumstances, more than we look God, and it ends up taking up our whole view, right? We never get a good picture of God because we're so busy looking at our circumstances. Verse 21, and Saul said, blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Please go and find out for sure and see the place where his hideout is and who has seen him there, for I am told he is very crafty. See, it's not that David is crafty at all. That's not the issue, is it? It's that he's appealing to God each and every step. And God is blessing him in that. God is on his side because he's on God's side. And that's why Saul hasn't been able to catch him. It's not because he's crafty. Verse 23, See therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty and I will go with you. And it shall be, if he is in the land, that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. Saul is relentless. He's relentless. Satan is relentless in our lives, isn't he? Never sleeps, never takes a vacation or a day off. But he's not omniscient and he's not omnipresent as God is. His scope of influence on us is finite. I love that God says to Satan, just as he said to the seas, this far you may come, but no farther. And Satan can't go beyond it. Amen? Verse 24, so they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the plain on the south of Jeshimon. I have another map of Maon up here. You can kind of see where Maon, the desert of Maon there, right, right in that area where Ziph is. Wilderness of Maon, right? Just looks like a happening place, doesn't it? Yeah, great place to spend your days. Then was there another one? <clears throat> yeah, in the plain on the south of Jeshimon, okay. Yeah, so again, you can see the terrain that David's having to live in and run from Saul from, and, and, and the terrain that Saul's having to try to hunt for David in. Verse 25, when Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David. Therefore, he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. 
So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. So you can see in a place like this, in some of the pictures we've seen, that you could be on one side of some big rocky hill and Saul could be on the other side, right? And they just circling each other and, and not finding each other. But you're get, it kind of feels like that Saul's getting close, right? That he's encircling him, he's, him and his men are encircling him to take them. But God shows up in a big way. Verse 27, but a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. Why didn't he go before when they attacked Keilah? Because this time God is leading him uh, to go do this. He's drawing Saul away. Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines, so they called that place the Rock of Escape. Then David went up from there and dwelt in strongholds at En Gedi. I think we have a picture of En Gedi up there. This was clearly from the Lord, right? He diverts Saul's attention away from David. God shows up, right, in response to David's prayers. David then goes to more strongholds in the wilderness of En Gedi. Do you have En Gedi up there? Did you guys see En Gedi? No? No En Gedi? Okay, don't worry about it. It's kind of a pretty place, but anyway. How can we summarize all of this? What do we get? What can we take from all this? How can we put this together, and what application can we take for us from this? Well, I, I think what you're looking at is, in a sense, the Christian life or a, the life of somebody who's following God, right? Think about it. David starts out this chapter walking in love, doesn't he? Helping others, the people of Keilah. Helping others, even those who may wrong us and stab us in the back in return. We see David seeking the Lord constantly. Should I do this? Should I go here? Should I go there? Staying in constant fellowship with God, watching, listening. As my mentor, Colonel Rader, used to say, staying within whispering distance of heaven. That God shouldn't have to shout with you, shout at you to get your attention. We've got time. I'll share with you that uh, little story where that came from. My mentor, Colonel Rader, they used to have church meetings at, at night sometimes, and then they would pick up this one woman, and they would take her to these meetings with him. And uh, it was Mrs. Gerlock. And he's driving home late with his wife, and they had been at one of these meetings, and they said, and he said he felt this stabbing jolt to his peace. Right? And he says, now, if you feel that once, he goes, yeah, you might dismiss it, right? But he says, if you feel it five or six times, he goes, you know who it is, you know. And uh, so... He's looked at his wife and he said, hey, I sense the stabbing jolt to my peace that we're supposed to go to Mrs. Gerlock's house. And his wife said, okay, now he said, if it's midnight and you're driving home and you look at your wife and you say, well, I feel led to go to this other woman's house. And she says, okay, you know, that's from the Lord, you know. <laughs> he said, now, old man Gerlock, she lived with, she lived with her dad 
And he said, he hated preachers at high noon. And he said, this was the wrong 12. And so he says, they go over there. And he said, in fact, I've been there before. And I put on my hand, how you doing, Mr. Gerlock? And the guy wouldn't even shake my hand. He'd just say, company's here, you know, like that. And so here I am standing on this guy's doorstep at midnight. And so I knock on the door. Guess who answers? Midnight. Old man Gerlock. And he says, I'm barely able to stammer out. I don't know why I'm here. And the guy says, I do. For the first time in my miserable life, I've had serious thoughts of God tonight. Come on in. And so he goes in. And he's like, the Holy Spirit has had thoroughly prepared this guy to get saved, right? And he said, I felt like I, was, I spent time trying to talk him out of getting saved, right? Because I want to make sure he knew what he was doing. But the th Holy Spirit had thoroughly prepared the guy. You know, a guy gets saved right there. And he says, we go into the kitchen. And he said, he had this collection of beautiful pipes on his kitchen table. And he said, they were clearly an idol in the guy's life. They were really expensive and just, you know. And Colonel Rader looks at him and he goes, you know, you've come so far tonight. He goes, why not just go all the way? And the guy goes, what do you think about to do with him? And, and uh, Colonel Rader goes, I echoed his, uh, he, he said, well, if in, in the New Testament, if they had idols, they'd either burn them or break them. And he said, well, let's don't burn them. We'll stink up the place. So let's just break them. So he went down the end of all those pipes and just snapping the ends off all those pipes. And they get down to the very last one, and the guy picks it up, and he says, there's a beautiful Meerschaum pipe with a Santa Claus face hand-carved in it, right? You know, really expensive. And the guy goes, oh, 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 man, this is a precious pipe, you know? And he said, I echoed his tone of voice, and I said, yeah, you've just received a precious salvation too, brother. And the guy went, wham, just slammed it on the kitchen table, just shattered it, you know? And he goes, we had a ball. And... I can remember him telling me the, this story, just sitting right there talking to him. And he went home. He went home. It was probably like two or three in the morning. And next morning, it's like seven o'clock. The phone rings, and she says, "Hey, I want to thank you for coming last night." He said he had a ball, just had a great time, and just so appreciative that you came, came, and you obeyed the Lord, right? And she said, "I'm especially thankful because he didn't wake up this morning." He died in his sleep last night. And he was 89 years old, and he looked at me, and he pointed his finger at me, and he said, that is why you need to stay within a whispering distance of heaven, because it can mean eternity to somebody. Man, something like that to stay with you. David was living within a whispering distance of heaven. Seeking the Lord constantly in fellowship. Should I do this? Should I do that? Acknowledging God in all of his ways. And God directed him. He had a relentless enemy who pursued him, just as we do. Again, Satan never sleeps, never takes a vacation, never takes a day off. He's relentless in his pursuit of us. He was watching, he was walking in the Spirit, not only being directed by, but comforted by the Spirit of God, just as we are with Christ in us, daily reminding him, do not fear. 
Do not fear. The enemy ultimately will fail. I will protect you. You are who I say you are going to be, who I say you're going to be. And God has plans for us, doesn't he? Romans 8.28, right? Romans 8, 28 and 29, right? We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. What purpose? Well, at least part of it is in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God will conform us to the image of his Son, and Satan has no right, or anybody else has any other right, to deny us that inheritance. Watching God show up in ways that only he can, right? Watching God show up in ways that only uh, he can. Pray and then watch God do what he does, right? Strengthening ourselves in God, maybe being strengthened in God by brothers and sisters, but at times by ourselves too. Speak to yourself. Dare to speak to yourself. Even when you don't feel it, when you're feeling down, when you're feeling stressed, when you're feeling fearful, tell yourself the truth. And of course, the Holy Spirit is constantly witnessing the truth to us. And notice that David lived a somewhat nomadic lifestyle in this chapter, right? In, in these events. He had really no place to land, he was on the run. In a, in a similar way, spiritually, you and I are strangers in a strange land. This, is, this world is not our home. Sometimes we get distracted and we think it is. We try to enjoy it too much, right? He has, in a sense, given us all things to enjoy, but we've got to be very careful. This is not our home, right? We are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Amen? We're strangers in a strange land. We're just passing through. We will reign with him one day. So remember this, that the enemy roams to and fro seeking whom he may devour. Be sober. First Peter 5.8 says this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may devour. First Peter 5.8. But I love... God's match for it. Second Second Chronicles sixteen nine that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward Him. David's heart was perfect toward Him. He wasn't perfect in his performance all the time, but his heart was perfect toward God, and that's what made all the difference. This is our life as a believer walking in love, seeking the Lord constantly, a relentless enemy who pursues us, doing our best to walk in the Spirit, strengthened in God by brothers and sisters, and uh, sometimes speaking to ourselves, staying in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, watching God show up in mighty ways in answer to prayer, and not clinging too tightly to this world. It's no secret that God doesn't do away with suffering in this life. It's no secret. We look at this and we think, man, the promises that David's been given, isn't it terrible that he's having to go through these terrible trials 
right, waiting and waiting for God to fulfill the promise that he'd given him. It's no secret that God doesn't shy away from suffering in this life. In fact, he owns it. He doesn't shy away from it. John 16, right? He says, in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The grid that what could be held up by the world is the greatest indictment against God, right? Oh, there's so much suffering in this world. God himself does not shy away at all. He says, nope, in this world you're going to have tribulation, right? But the beautiful thing is that God uses it without being the cause and the author of it. That's the beautiful thing, right? He causes even the wrath of man to praise him, Scripture says, right? God has the ability to use even the wickedness of man to turn it around for his glory. And so then I got to thinking. I got to thinking. I was reading, actually came in my devotional reading to 1 Peter 5, 10 and 11. And I got to thinking about these verses. But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Look at this next phrase. After you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And I got to thinking. Couldn't we have just left that first one out? Couldn't we do that? How about, but the God of all grace who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus make you perfect and establish and strengthen and settle you, right? To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen? No. After you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish. And I pondered that and I just thought about that and I just said, Lord, why? And it was like the Lord just dropped something in me. And my mind went to Isaiah 61, 3. It was at the end of all of that where the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and all that stuff. And it says, verse 3, why is he doing all he's doing? Why did he come? What is he doing? Verse 3 of Isaiah 61 says, that way we may be trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he might be glorified. That's his goal. That's the end. That we might be restored to what we were created to be, which is the image and glory of God. Right? God has planted something in us in his Holy Spirit, the potential for the life of Christ to be lived out through all of us. What gets in the way? Self, flesh, right? And I got to thinking, God wants to plant something. Man, he's building a tree, you know? Trees of righteousness. If you, got, if you want to plant something, what if you've got some hard, dried, crusty, fallow ground? What is it about hard and dry and crusty, fallow ground that makes it so hard to plant in? Right? It's essentially clinging to self, to itself, too tightly. You have to break up the fallow ground for it to receive and yield to what you want to plant there. And it's so much like what God has with us, right? God, may, God wants to make us perfect represent, representatives of himself, perfect images of himself. He wants to establish us 
settle us. He wants us to be strong, fruitful plants. But he's got to break up this fallow ground of self-righteousness, self-interest, self-sufficiency, self-trust, self-aggrandizement, self-promotion. It's got to be broken up. And And I think glory will reveal there's no other way God could have done that other than to allow the suffering that man causes in this world to break us of our own self-will and our own self-dependence and create in us a God-dependence. God, I can't handle this. He's like, that's exactly what I needed to hear. That's exactly what I needed to hear. Break up that fallow ground of selfishness and self-sufficiency and let me and yield to what I've planted in your life. Let me manifest my life in you, a life you could never live on your own. He'll do it if we'll just yield. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your faithfulness. So thankful that you love us enough, Lord, to allow yet the suffering in this world to assist you in making us all that you created us to be to restore in us the image that has been marred by sin and selfishness. Lord, we just want to be vessels in whom and through whom you shine your glory. Break up our fallow ground, Lord. Whatever it takes to break us of our own self-sufficiency, God. To allow you to be all that you want to be. I know that's what you were doing in David. You were building a king out of that man. It took the wilderness of Ziph and the wilderness of Maon and the wilderness of Engedi. It took all of those experiences and being hunted relentlessly to drive him to you, to make him a yielded man, to be all that you were building and creating in him. May we be the same way we respond the same. In Jesus' name, amen.